I'm Carrie. And I'm Amy, and you are listening to The Perks of Being a Book Lover. This is a show where two friends chat about books and reading with another book lover, and we find book lovers everywhere. Talking about books is one of our favorite things to do besides coming to the end of season five and taking a little break. It's been a great season. We've had lots of wonderful guests, but it's time for us to take a few weeks off and we'll be back in season six. We may be a little biased in thinking that reading people are the coolest people. So our last guest of season five is Alia Voles, who wrote a book titled Home Baked about her experience growing up in San Francisco in the late 70s and 80s. Alia's parents were the owners of Sticky Fingers Brownies, which made pot brownies that were known all over the city. While these brownies were the source of relaxation and fun for many people, when HIV and AIDS hit San Francisco, Sticky Fingers became a lifeline for many gay men who were devastated by the disease because the pot brownies helped them with pain and appetite. The book covers a lot of territory, not the least of which is Alia's parents' backgrounds and what it was like for her to grow up in San Francisco in a family that couldn't really talk about what it did because of the illegal nature of their business. It's a fascinating read. But first... So, fingers crossed, I'm hoping that everybody stays well in my family and that in six days we'll be heading to Nevada and California, which will be the first trip where we've been out of the state in almost two years. Very exciting for you. Yes. Yeah. I've been not peopling, which isn't really unusual for me, but I've been not peopling even more than my normal not I know. You told me you could not see me. (laughs) I know. You You go out to dinner too much. (laughs) You you said stay away. (laughs) I'll see you when I get back. (laughs) (laughs) Well, I hope you have a great time. And then when you get back, I'm going to make you people with me. I will. I will people with you when I get back. So I have been busy making book club prizes. So a tradition that I started, and here's the thing, I start these things thinking it's a cool thing. And then years later, when I'm still doing it, I think, why did I start doing that thing? This is one of those. So I don't know, maybe six or seven years ago, I decided that it would be really cool if we started having prizes at our holiday book club meeting. And so we vote on things like favorite book, least favorite book, book that had the best discussion and things like that. And I then handcraft a prize to go with those awards. And I am not much of a crafter, really, any other time of year, but I do it for this. I think generally they turn out pretty cute, Mm -hmm. but, you know, I can't vouch for that. And maybe everybody's thinking, good God, would she just give us a gift card (laughs) like a normal person? Anyway, I have started this this tradition and now I'm stuck in it. Anyway, I have been working on the book club prizes and I'm getting close to being done. I'm getting- and, and actually you kind of had to pivot, which is what life is all about anymore because your original plan was something completely different. And then you couldn't find the stuff that, that you needed to do it. I was actually going to help you. But yeah, then, you were. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Cuz it was plant related and you like plants. I do like plants. Um but it turned out that I couldn't get the supplies that I needed to do it. So yes, I had to I had to pivot. I also give something to the people who read all the books for the year. So I don't know about most of y'all who are in book clubs, but I would say not everybody in our book club reads all 12 books that we pick throughout the year. There's probably I think this year we have 10. And That's we have, pretty good. That is pretty good. That's more than most years. Most years, it's usually like six or seven. But we had a lot this year. So I can't tell you what I'm making. But maybe when I get them done, I will post a picture on our on our social media. But I will say that one of them requires many, many, many wine corks. And in fact, I put a call out on Facebook, like in this, <laughs> it's called like Freegans. And I put a call out, hey, does anybody have any extra corks? And so yesterday I was traipsing all around the city to collect bags and bags of wine corks from random people. (laughs) Oh, I think we should mention. Oh, yeah. This is our last regular season episode, but stay tuned. We may have a bonus episode either the very last Wednesday of December or the first 
Wednesday of January. I'm not sure what it will be, that it will sort of be our year roundup. And we'll talk about some of our favorite books and books we want to read for the new year. And we will have some book recommendations from former guests telling us their favorite book of the year. All right. Well, let's go ahead. And Alia is is closing out season five with her super interesting story. So let's listen to Alia. Alia, thank you so much for joining us today. Thank you for having me. Alia, it is such a pleasure to talk to you. I loved your book and I really admire you for writing it. I imagine that it isn't easy for anybody to write about their childhoods or their parents, especially when they're still alive. But yours is even more daring because your parents were engaged in some illegal activities at the time. But Mm -hmm. I think it's a really important book to help us understand a topic that's certainly all in the news currently about legalized marijuana and about medical marijuana. And much of that history starts in San Francisco. But before we talk about all that, We always like to ask our guests about their childhood and their teenage reading habits. So were you a reader as a child? Oh, yes. I was a huge reader. I was not very social with other children. I I liked adults a lot, and I loved books. So always, when I was little, I loved to read. By about nine or ten, I got into a horror phase, Mm. and I still love horror, but I think it was helping me process some of the things that were going on around me, particularly this was during the AIDS crisis. And when I look at it now, I see all the parallels. I see why I needed horror at that time. And uh, perhaps we can talk about that later too. Then as a teenager was when things really changed for me. I, I was naughty. I was getting into a lot of trouble at school and ended up in an independent study program expecting dittos, expecting the quickest and simplest way out of high school. But instead, I got this teacher, Chris Clark, who designed a program that was entirely based around reading. And he operated out of a tiny little broom closet in the library that he had crammed with over 2,500 books. Uh, A total renaissance man. There were books on all topics And he would encourage his students in individual meetings to choose our own materials. And the the program was entirely reading and writing books. And it it changed my life completely. So you would be reading something different from what other students that he taught would be reading? Yes, the courses were all completely individual. So it, it would break down so that you had four units. I don't know, maybe it was three weeks or a month of history, say, and English. And within the umbrella of history and English, he would help you find the books that were most interesting to you. Hmm. So it was was very individualized. I really took to it. And I ended up reading things like Marcuse and Camus and Machiavelli and all of that kind of stuff in high school. I just loved it. So if in a history unit, You might read a biography of Gandhi, or you might read about the last czars of Russia. It was just whatever would pick the interest of the particular student. That would be your coursework. And you'd read two books a week and write five essays on each book. Wow. Um, Which I think is more responsible than anything for turning me into a writer. Right. Right. Absolutely. Wow. When you said that you like to read horror books when mm-hmm. you were a little bit younger, what kind of horror books? Are we talking like Stephen King or are we yeah. talking more like Goosebumps? What? Oh, no, what it, was, it was more Stephen King. I loved Stephen <laughs> King and Dean Koontz and, you know, probably my uh, gateway drug was Flowers in the Attic or something like that. <laughs> right. But I, I was always a precocious kid and I gravitated toward it and my mom was never one to control what information I absorbed. If it interested me, it was generally okay with her, Mm -hmm. uh, which I realize is unusual parenting, but it worked for us. And I have this very specific memory of being in like fourth or fifth grade or something like that. And we had our quiet reading period and all the kids had like Sweet Valley High. And and I was reading The Stand, which is 900 pages, (laughs) something like that. Um, Definitely a weirdo. But I I found a kind of 
relief in those stories. And I still to this day, when I'm emotionally distraught or dealing with something really heavy in my life, if I'm processing some kind of grief, I generally watch horror movies or hmm. read horror books. And I don't know, I feel that it, it it kind of gives us this space to exercise the worst case scenario. Mm. And then it has an ending. Mm. And if it's Stephen King, generally kind of a happy ending. Mm-hmm. You know, he was always a little soft in that way. <laughs> yeah. Well, let's transition and, and talk about your book, Home Baked. So how would you describe your book to people who haven't read it? So my folks, particularly my mom, had the first high volume cannabis edibles business in San Francisco, started in the 1970s. And at that time, they were distributing upward of 10,000 brownies per month all throughout the city, through all the different social scenes of the day. And then when the AIDS crisis hit at the beginning of the 1980s, it transitioned into the very dawn of the medical cannabis movement. So Home Baked follows the evolution of cannabis from party drug to palliative medicine and people like my folks from dealer to healer through this very personal lens. So was there an impetus that made you decide that you wanted to write the book? Well, it was a combination of things. My mom has always been a great raconteur, and I grew up, especially in the cannabis community of yesteryear in the 70s and 80s, customers would come over and and stay for hours talking, sharing stories, reminiscing during the AIDS crisis. There was a lot of grieving that went on. So it was really a community experience, and storytelling was always integral to it. So I grew up with these wonderful stories. And there was a point when my mom was dealing with some health issues that I decided, you know, now's the time to record her telling these stories in her own voice. Because what if I can't remember someday? Mm-hmm. And it's something that I think we should all do with our elders personally. It's, it's not the kind of thing you regret doing. Right. Um, so I started recording these stories and I had questions. And my mom would say, oh, you should really ask your dad about that, or you should ask Barb or X person. Okay, I would go and interview those people who sent me to other people, who sent me to other people. And it, the interview pool just increased exponentially. And it became clear that the way these stories were fitting together, it was really an unexplored history of a community. And and that was the story that I most wanted to tell. I wanted to document this really vibrant, creative, daring community during a pivotal time that ultimately changed America, really. Did you have a background as a writer prior to writing this book? I was starting to write. Yeah, I didn't necessarily grow up writing. Uh, I, I, but you know, if you read enough books, eventually you start putting your own words down. I think many of us do anyway. But I was never a big journaler. I was never very good at keeping a journal. You know, I wasn't like a born writer like some people are. But I was interested by that point. I thought I wanted to write fiction. But then I had this great story. So how do you not tell the story that you're born with? So your your book covers, I mean, it covers a lot of ground. It talks about the legality of marijuana in California. And in the U.S., it talks about your parents' initial romance and goes through to their divorce. And then it talks about the age crisis and how that hits San Francisco. So when you were talking to people, you talked about how you kept seeing these patterns. So can you talk to us a little bit about noticing those patterns and what those patterns kind of looked like to you? And did you have hmm. trouble fitting them together? Because your book, it's it's done so well. So I'm just curious about, you know, was that a struggle? Did that become complicated? Because there are like so many pieces. Mm-hmm. No, it was horrible. <laughs> <laughs> It, it was it was the impossible task. It was so difficult. You've gone right to the core of what was the most challenging thing about this book. The whole thing from the time I started the interviews 
to publication was almost 12 years. I did write a bad novel in between there that's in the boneyard. Nobody will ever read it. Uh, (laughs) And some stories and essays. And I had, you know, I had to learn how to write. I had to mature as a writer. But the most difficult thing was fitting together the components, finding a voice that could narrate my parents' story, often from their point of view. So I'm really incorporating a lot of interviews in oral history. So to find a voice that could tell other people's stories, that could also tell the history of San Francisco during this period in an authoritative and researched way with sources. And that could also incorporate aspects of memoir. And one voice that could do all of those maneuvers was incredibly difficult to find. It was a lot of trial and error. As far as what the book included, all of those different aspects, you know, it's four or five books really crammed together. That was the material revealing itself over time. It was really dictated by the material. I would get so fascinated by the subcultures that people were sharing with me in in these oral histories and think, oh gosh, okay, I have to include the genesis of the San Francisco punk scene. It's just too cool. And I have to include the street artists rebelling against the merchant association to get the right to to peddle their wares in the street. And obviously there's a a large way in which it's a love letter to the LGBTQ plus community in San Francisco and the the many years of fighting and activism and how that dovetails with the cannabis community. And so I'd become so fascinated with these tangents and then have to develop rules for myself, like how, you know, how much of this story can I tell without getting off track? Mm-hmm. So there was a very complicated process of figuring out what the rules of the book were so that you could just read it and enjoy it like a novel and not have to worry about, oh, I'm being educated. Yeah, I was wondering about that because yeah. as I was describing this book to some friends, you know, I would call it a memoir, but it's really so much more than a memoir. I mean, it's mm. a memoir, but it's also a history you know, so h- how would you categorize it? Do you categorize it as a memoir or? I actually don't. It does get packaged in that way because it's what makes the most sense in the publishing world. But it is a memoir last. I consider it first and foremost a cultural history. Mm-hmm. But in order to tell this cultural history from the most compelling angle, I found that my my early readers, my writing group, really responded to the ways in which the story was personal and really responded to this this very unique and personal lens on the era. So I would think, okay, that means that my, my family story is going to be your time machine in a way. It's going to be what brings you into the 1970s, which was such a volatile and dynamic period in San Francisco, so that I can tell the story of Harvey Milk and Dan White, so that I can tell the story of Dennis Perone and the fight for cannabis legalization, you know, and do it in a way that would be fresh and and personal and come from the heart. So the ways in which it's a memoir is It's intended to invite the reader into a personal experience of a public and political and historical situation. I really didn't want it to feel academic, you know, so Mm -hmm. it was a delicate line and I kept having to rein myself in when I wanted to, I'd kind of get into a teaching moment and have to pull back from that. And okay, what, what are we feeling in this moment then? Well, I think you were 100% successful with it because I grew up around the same time in a completely different part of the country. So your childhood was completely different than the kind of childhood that I had. But when I was reading this, I felt like I was gaining a new perspective on things that I had heard about on the news when I was a teenager in the Mm. 1980s, but I didn't Mm -hmm. have a full appreciation for at that time. And your book gave all those social issues a face and a name because it was personal. Mm-hmm. And so that's one of the things that I really appreciated about Thank it. Thank you. Well, you know, when you ask about the impetus, there is also an aspect of it. I, I grew up with a burden of, of secrecy, right? Because my parents were doing work that could very easily put them in prison. So I grew up 
very much aware, even as a young, even as a four-year-old kid, very much aware that I couldn't talk about certain things in public with other kids, with teachers, anybody outside of the extended family. And it's the nature of secrets to want to be told someday, right? Mm -hmm. So there's an, there's an aspect of it where I knew that I was the keeper in a way of the secrets of a particular world that I had, I had access to this point of view that most people didn't have. And that also was part of the reason for wanting to finally share it. Now I can finally tell this story. The statute of limitations is expired. (laughs) It's not going to get anybody in trouble. And with where we are today regarding cannabis, I also was seeing a certain amount of erasure of the really vital work of AIDS activism in moving the cannabis movement forward. I believe very strongly that we would not have the kind of access we have today, I'm certain of it, without the HIV AIDS crisis. Mm. And the fact that that wasn't really getting to being talked about anymore now that HIV AIDS is an illness that most people can live with now that the, we finally have Proteus inhibitors, we have good pharmaceuticals for it. It's really kind of been erased in a way. And then I felt a certain responsibility to bring that part of the story back into the conversation as much as I could. So what was the process for writing your books? You talk about that you interviewed people who had been around at that time. And you've lived your experience, of course, but about how many people did you interview? And were there any people that you asked to interview who refused? Uh, In the end, I think it was about 65 people. Yeah, it was quite a lot of interviews. And it was everything from, you know, obviously immediate family I interviewed extensively to at one point I I was interviewing a police officer. (laughs) And I, you know, I was raised never to talk to cops. So that (laughs) that was an interesting turn of events. It just broadened exponentially, the interview pool. There were only a couple of people who declined to be interviewed. One was an old time grower. Mm-hmm. And even though things have, have changed now, there's such a, a, a habit. There was such an extreme need for secrecy back in the day that it was understandable. And so I just found someone else to talk to. Mm-hmm. The most difficult aspect of collecting the interviews were that, as I was saying, a lot of the our friends and customers during the HIV AIDS crisis were not well, and so many did not make it. So it was hard to find survivors, to be honest. Mm. That was a a very depressing process. There was about a month that I spent combing the, the Bay Area Reporter obituaries, which was the main gay newspaper that ran HIV AIDS obituaries every week. And there were times when the obituary, there would be 20 pages of of obituaries. I mean, it was just awful. And so instead of looking for specific people who were still alive, it became easier to follow the threads of people who had died. And you'd look in the obituary and you'd see who their survivors were. And then you'd look for their obituaries. And then by process of elimination, find people who are still around. Mm. It was incredibly sad. Yeah, when you talk about that in your book, it was really jarring. I mean, obviously, again, it's something that I had heard about on the news and I knew had happened, but just you talking about how many of your parents' friends or acquaintances died, I I don't think I knew the concentration mm-hmm. of it. Do you know what I mean? Until mm-hmm. you talked to somebody who was there and experienced it. And also the fact that they were so young. Uh, to me, this is a sign of a good book is when I'm Googling, you know, I, I'm like, oh, I need to learn more. So then I, I would Google these people and they were so incredibly young yeah. and it would be terrible regardless. But just the fact that they were, you know, really just starting their lives. Yeah. And the fact that that HIV AIDS really broke out first and in a community of gay men. I mean, it was such a creative and vibrant community. So in in places where there was a a very active LGBTQ plus community like San Francisco or New York, we lost entire generations of dancers and 
painters and musicians and architects and designers. And it was, it was all the creatives. So uh, it's sort of a cliche, but you think about the books that weren't written, the paintings that weren't painted, you know, it's really very moving and sad. It, there were lives interrupted when people were just hitting their stride in their 20s, 30s and 40s, really just finding their creative voices. But it's it's interesting to me because my world, when I was maybe from, I don't know, like nine to well into my teenage years, was so in the grip of HIV AIDS because so many of our of our family friends were ill and all of my great terrible world fears and nightmares and things like that were centered around it. And then I talk with people who had very little awareness that it was happening. And it there's a dissonance. It's very, it's still confusing to me. You know, it's a kind of, I don't know, it's almost like a motion sickness. It's it feels like I lived on a different planet. Mm-hmm. There's a an, a quote that I think about a lot from Vito Russo, who was a a very prominent activist in ACT UP, and he he passed, but I'm going to paraphrase here. He said, living with AIDS is like living through a war, which is happening only for those people who happen to be in the trenches. Every Mm -hmm. time a shell explodes, you look around and more of your friends have died and no one else notices. Mm. But I felt like, yeah, even all these years later, it's only people who were in a certain kind of community and in a certain place who really, really felt hit by it. And yet, by the time Proposition 215, which was the first medical cannabis legislation in the country, by the time that passed passed in 1996, 380,000 Americans had died of HIV AIDS. And still it seemed so isolated. Mm -hmm. So it's, it's really a strange thing. You know, your book talks about early on, it was, you know, marijuana just for the fun of marijuana. And then, you know, it became part of the HIV and AIDS and and the medicinal purposes of it. And one of the stereotypes that I think people have is that if someone's parents do drugs, then their parents are completely negligent and the child definitely suffers. And, Mm -hmm. you know, and that is true in, in a lot of cases. But in your book, when you write about your childhood, your parents don't seem to have become addicted. And there was a time when you were distanced from your dad. That didn't really have to do with drugs as much as it had to do with some of his own, you know, baggage. And for me, at least, you know, your your childhood, as you write about it, it seems kind of magical. Plus, during that time, there was also like the, the Just Say No to Drugs campaign. And that surely, you know, was strange if you saw those commercials. So... It seems like a lot of uh, stories about people, you know, whose parents are involved with drugs, they're they're bleak and gritty and they're kind of depressing. So as you were looking to get it published, did you ever feel any kind of pressure to write that kind of story? And do you feel like the publishing industry prefers that, if for no other reason than to appeal to kind of the square Midwesterners who are like, (laughs) well, surely all drugs are bad because that's what we've been told our whole entire lives. Right. It's a great question. And I'm I'm glad you've asked it. I wouldn't say that I was pressured to do that, but I was constantly working against stereotypes Mm. in the writing. And so People would, in my writing group, which I was very dependent on and still am to this day, I would share early drafts and people would make assumptions that, no, this has to be bad. Why aren't you talking about how it's bad? And I I believe that that would have reflected the reactions I got later. And so I had to really consciously address those tropes and those assumptions in the writing. There were some editorial moments late in the process where I had to come back and work on some of that more to be really clear about what it was like and also acknowledge the ways in which the unusual parenting was sometimes reckless, you know. But here's the thing. Part of my reason for wanting to write this book is that I've read the trauma memoirs too. I've seen the shows and I felt that It was a very one note story being told that didn't line up with my experience. And having grown up in a community with other 
weed kids, right? So I do want to say that the cannabis community of the 1970s and 80s was overall a wholesome community. They were, generally speaking, family businesses. A lot of the growers that we knew and worked with were women, had children. In, in the Sticky Fingers world, which was my parents' business, the other salesperson also had a child. The rappers who wrapped the brownies and cellophane, they had children. The kids would come over, we'd play together, and everybody was very well cared for. You know, you always had an extended family of people, furthermore, doing backup care. And my mom was part of mother's groups with other alternative parents who would talk about how to effectively raise children outside of the normal paradigm. These were people who had moreover grown up during the 50s when there was a very specific kind of child rearing paradigm. And so this was one of the first generations of women that were that were looking at raising children in different, more experimental models. So my mom was not the only one doing this, right? But she was doing it with a, with a lot of intent. It wasn't an accident. It wasn't like, oh, I'm just, I'm high, so I'm going to raise my kid this way. It was a very specific decision to look for different paradigms for raising kids. And I grew up in a community of other children who were also raised in alternative manners. And most of the hippie kids I know had fine childhoods or great childhoods and have grown up to be well-adjusted. But here's the thing is that if you had a good childhood, you don't tend to write a memoir. (laughs) (laughs) I mean, you probably don't tend to be a writer to begin with. You know, we're all, we work from spaces of trauma first. And I do think that the publishing industry encourages it in a way. I mean, if there's no trauma, there's no drama, right? Right. So, so many of the memoirs that make it to market, whether they're about drugs or anything else, they're trauma-driven memoirs. And I would say that in Home Baked, I am drawing on trauma, but I'm drawing on cultural trauma mm-hmm. rather than personal trauma because I don't feel that I was abused in my childhood. I feel that I was raised in a, in a loving and nurturing and attentive home. So my parents smoked a lot of weed and sometimes they did other drugs and not all of their decisions were good and they weren't always careful, but they were always present. They were making sure that I was educated, clothed, fed, that I had creative things to do, that I had an extended family, that I knew I was loved. I also feel very fortunate to have grown up in a creatively dynamic environment. I mean, I, as, as a little kid with all my gay uncles and aunties, I had so many wonderfully creative people around me, teaching me to draw, playing dress up, spending time. So it was really a beautiful environment in that sense. And I was definitely not neglected. So I did, I did, in a sense, want to push against the kind of memoir that depicts alternative parenting as inherently abusive. I mean, I come from the perspective, having grown up in that world, that when I read about, uh, you know, I have a friend who writes a lot about her very straight, but alcoholic and emotionally abusive family in suburban New Jersey. Right. And that's dark. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah, for sure. And they, from the outside, they looked completely normal and 2.5 kids. You know, it was the perfect family from the outside. And on the inside, it was very heavy. Right. Hmm. Right. So I don't don't know. I don't, I I feel like those tropes tend to be inaccurate and Mm -hmm. that there needed to be a counter narrative. And I, so I, I wanted to contribute to that. Carrie mentioned that your childhood in some ways sounded like it had a magical feel to it. And one of Mm -hmm. my favorite passages in your book was the connection that you make with your upbringing and the book Alice's Adventures in Wonderland. Yeah, And I was wondering if you would talk about that comparison a little bit. Oh, sure. Um, Yeah, I saw myself in Alice for very obvious reasons, I think. She was my first and favorite heroine of children's books and, you know, of the Disney characters and the cartoons and that kind of thing. I loved Alice for a lot of reasons, but when I look at it now, it's like, well, for one thing, she wasn't waiting for a prince. Mm. She wasn't a princess at all. She was an adventurer. 
which I thought was so cool. And I think I really identify with that. She was exploring on her own. She was also surrounded by very colorful characters <laughs> in different states of inebriation. I mean, let's be <laughs> frank, what's Wonderland? You know? And it would be nonsensical. And she, she would notice that it was nonsensical and maybe complain about it a little, but ultimately find something that appealed to her about it. And then she'd take another step farther into Wonderland. So I, I definitely related to that. I also, I was dealing with adults in various states of an intoxication, a lot of psychedelics, uh, not just my folks, but also the, the extended family around us. I don't remember being very aware of that, but it's something that I notice when I, something that when I look back, I think, well, yeah, everybody was experimenting with their state of mind. So that must have been surreal. But when you're a kid, you just kind of go with it. Uh, I think kids are a little surreal anyway. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> uh, <laughs> But also, you know, not to keep bringing up the AIDS crisis, but during that period, uh, people around me were physically transforming Mm -hmm. very dramatically. And I had to find ways to absorb and interpret that information. So Alice made a lot of sense to me. And I loved how she moved through the world. She was always skeptical. She was always like, why are you doing this? Why are you not making sense? And I I think that I was, I think I was a little like that. (laughs) (laughs) So in many ways, this book is like a love letter to the city of San Francisco. Mm. It's warts and all. And I've, I've been to San Francisco several times as a tourist, and I enjoyed the way that you described the city. So what are some of your favorite things about your hometown that people may not think about? What I love about this city is that it has always been from the be- from its colonial beginnings, I'll say, which is to say it was colonized in 1776. And from that very beginning, it always had this fringy, wild west, experimental, kind of anything goes. And this part of the country has a tendency to push things a little further <laughs> and sometimes do things first but in like a, a a wild and roughshod way. And then by the time it moves to other parts of the world, it's kind of been smoothed out and, and economized. <laughs> but San Francisco, for that reason, has been a place that people can experiment artistically in rather weird ways. And people will still show up and support, even if it's not all that polished. You can make like kinds of art and artistic movements that I think you'd get booed off stage for in New York. <laughs> it's expected to be a little better, maybe. But that kind of bubbly, oh, let's just try it with the $5 we have in our pocket <laughs> kind of thing, I think is exciting about San Francisco. And even though it's re- it's changed dramatically, dramatically, and now it's it's a very moneyed place and a lot of the artistic communities have been edged out, I think there's still that core that is somehow going to come back. But we'll see how that bears out. Alia, there's so many questions we could ask you about this book. (laughs) I really had a hard time narrowing it down, what things that we wanted to talk to you about today. But this has been fascinating. But now we are going to take a short break. And when we come back, we're going to talk about what we're reading. We are back with Carrie and Alia, and we're going to talk about what we're reading. So, Carrie, what's up over there? If I hadn't already talked about Dune, I could talk about Dune and make a connection with Alia's name, but I've already talked about Dune. So, I am going to talk about an audiobook that I just finished called Pandora's Lab Seven Stories of Science Gone Wrong. Mm-hmm. And the author is Paul Offit. So I had no idea what this book was going to be about, but I enjoy reading about sciencey stuff. This was pretty fascinating. The book talks, uh, obviously, about seven people or situations where people have either done something intentionally or unintentionally related to science that causes these terrible consequences. 
I'll give you some of the examples that he gives in the book. So one of the people that he talks about was Fritz Haber, who was a German chemist who won a Nobel Prize, and he discovered how to make synthetic fertilizer. And because of that discovery, agricultural production was able to ramp up so that hundreds and millions more people can be fed. So we think, yes, that's a good thing. That's positive, right? But his work in chemistry that led to this synthetic fertilizer also led to the creation of the gases that the Nazis used in concentration camps that killed millions of people. So that that was one example. Another example was Linus Pauling, who also won a Nobel Prize. He discovered uh, the nature of chemical bonds, but later in his life, he he kind of went on this tangent where he promoted people to take, himself included, massive quantities of vitamins, specifically vitamin C. And he said that vitamin C in these massive amounts, you know, far beyond the recommended daily allowance could cure cancer, even though the scientific evidence was very, very clear that not only was that not going to happen, it wasn't going to cure cancer, but overuse of vitamins could cause cancer. (laughs) And he and his wife both actually died of cancer, whether that was related to their excessive use of vitamin C. You know, I don't know that we know that. So I, I thought this was fascinating because I think that science, as I think as we've learned during this pandemic, you know, science is complicated. It's not just, you know, something happens and we understand it immediately. And I think that's one of the reasons why people, you know, we have been seeing science happening in real life and it changes and people hypothesize and then they have to prove it. And sometimes what they think doesn't actually, it can't be reproduced and it's not accurate. So one of the things that I thought was really cool about this book, I mean, aside from learning about these people, is Paul Offit in the book talks about how you follow the data, right? And the biggest part of that is the reproducibility of the data. So just because there's a study that comes out that says X, if that study can't be replicated over and over and over and over and over again, then that study, we can't go by that. And so I think that, you know, when you hear about some of these conspiracy theories that people float, they're focusing on this one study that could never be replicated. So I, you know, I, I like that. I, I appreciated that. He also talked about how the dose determines the poison and even water, which everybody would say water is good for you, right? But even water, if you drink it in large enough quantities in a short period of time, it could cause an imbalance of sodium in your body and it could kill you. And so we have gone in some ways, we say, oh, this thing is bad. It's bad. It's bad in all quantities and all measures. You know, it is just bad. Whereas the reality is, well, maybe it's bad in these quantities, or in these situations, it's kind of like marijuana, right? <laughs> you know, we were like, it's bad, it's bad. Well, is it? Maybe the dose determines what we can do with it. So again, if you're a sciencey person, this is a book that you would probably find fascinating. I did, and I would recommend it to other people. Is it written more for the average reader or is it? Is there a lot of like scientific jargon? Yeah, lingo no, and things. No, no, no. It it talks a little bit about, you know, like, for example, uh, when it talks about uh, Fritz Haber, it talks about how he figured out how to pull nitrogen from the air. So it talks about that, but it's not like... So so non-scientists don't need to be scared to read this. No, no, not at all. And they can always just kind of go, well, I didn't understand that. Moving on. You know, (laughs) I don't think that's going to hinder them from understanding the the point of the book. Uh, Alia, what have you been reading? I'm reading like 15 books right now, which is normal (laughs) for me, and it takes me forever to finish anything. But there are two that I'm particularly taken with at the moment. One is an an advanced reading copy. Okay, so it's not out until March, but you all can mark your calendars. It's called In Defense of Witches. Ooh. Yeah, The Legacy of the Witch Hunts and Why Women Are Still on Trial. It's by Mona Cholet. I don't know how to pronounce. She's French. It might be Cholet. I don't know. (laughs) C-H-O-L-L-E-T. But it's 
absolutely fascinating. So she starts with the witch hunts that swept Europe and in and America, right? And and talks about how that legacy has always targeted the same tropes or the same kinds of women, women who are independent, childless, financially capable, elderly, intelligent, educated, that these women have been singled out over the centuries and targeted for witches and how this has continued through to today. So she argues, and I think very effectively, that the witch hunts are very much still alive in contemporary society. And uh, the prose is gorgeous. It's super readable and just fascinating. Just a great autumn and winter read if you can get your hands on an advanced copy. And I'm sure it will be a great spring read as well. (laughs) Cool. That sounds awesome. It is. It's really cool. Highly recommend. And then for something, oh God, I was going to say lighter, but it's so not. (laughs) (laughs) For something different, a novel. I'm reading this just astoundingly beautiful novel by Ava Homa, who's the first Kurdish woman to publish a book in English. And uh, she actually lives here in the Bay Area. The book is called Daughters of Smoke and Fire. And she's from Iran. And the book is about a Kurdish community being heavily persecuted in Iran through the generations. And it's from the perspective of a young woman. It's kind of a coming of age story. She's dealing with intense gender restrictions within her family while the family is also being persecuted in some instances quite violently by the Iranian government. So it's it's educational. I mean, I, I don't I, I don't know that much about Kurdish culture. I don't know that many of us do. It's really been rendered in a lot of ways invisible to the Western eye, I think. So I'm learning a lot from it, but it's also just a beautiful novel, a beautiful family story. And the narration is it's poetic. The narration is compelling. And I find it to be a page turner. So I don't read a lot of novels, I'll say. I'm, I, I'm mostly during re- doing research for my next book. And, and so I read a lot of nonfiction. But I, I picked it up intending to read a couple pages and I haven't put it down since. So wow. well, that's yeah, a good that's recommendation. Really it's really Very beautiful. Good. Well, Amy, what have you been working on over there? Well, I went out of my comfort zone this week. I read a fantasy novella that's been nominated for the Hugo, the Locus, and the Nebula Awards this year. And as you know, Carrie, fantasy is not generally my genre. I have flirted with it around the edges, but usually the fantasy books I've picked don't have a lot of world building involved with them. But this one did have a little bit of world building and I liked it. What do you think about that? Yeah. So this book is part of a larger series and it reminded me of Harry Potter meets Men in Black with a slightly steampunk vibe. And the name of the book is called The Haunting of Tramcar 015 by P. Jelly Clark. And it's set in an alternate Cairo, Egypt in 1912. And this Cairo is a little different from the Cairo that you might imagine. There is a ministry of alchemy, enchantments, and supernatural entities that is a government agency that tries to keep track and order of all the magical beings in the community. And most of these magical beings are what are called Jins. It's spelled D-J-I-N-N-S, or what we would call genies in the Western world. And in this world, there are all kinds of jinns. There are benevolent ones and there are evil ones and there's everything in between. And so we have our two main characters, Officer Hamid and his new young partner, Ansi, who have to work their first case together. And they've been called to investigate a possessed tram car. There's a spirit that's taken over the tram and it's attacking passengers. So what we learn about the tram cars in Cairo is that there are gears on the inside in the ceiling and they are run by gin magic and it takes them up into the air and above the city but this one has an evil spirit up in those gears and so these two dudes have to figure out how to rid the car of that spirit 
I can't tell you too much more about the plot because this is a novella and it's short, but there are a few things that I really appreciated about this book. First, it's set in the Middle East and there are many cultural references to the food, the clothes, the things from that area, which were intriguing, but things that I was completely unfamiliar with. I was really glad that I was reading this on a Kindle so I could just look up all the terms, you know, with the press of a button. And the two officers are of different religious groups. So Hamed is Muslim and Ansi's family are Coptic Christians. So that was interesting to see that diversity represented. The other theme in here was that of feminism. So women in the country are fighting for their right to vote as the story takes place. I should have probably Googled whether that's true or not. Somehow I'm skeptical that women had the right to vote in Egypt in 1912, but I could be wrong about that. But although the two characters are men, females are powerful and integral to this story, especially a group of women that remind me of witches or witch doctors, but they have a different name. Um, But they give Hamed and Ansi the break they need to solve their case. And as I said before, this is part of a series about Cairo and the Ministry of Alchemy, Enchantments, and Supernatural Entities, and that series is called The Dead Jinn Universe. There's a short story called A Dead Jinn in Cairo, and he also published just recently his first full-length novel uh, in that series called A Master of Jinn. And in both of these, the protagonist is a woman, a special agent, Fatma El Sawari, who is kind of a rock star in the agency. And I enjoyed this novel enough that I want to try those other books out. The author, P. Jelly Clark, he's a writer of color who spent much of his childhood in Trinidad and Tobago, but now lives in New England with his family. He's written several other books that have received much acclaim, including one that I think may have one of the best titles ever. It's called The Secret Lives of the Nine Negro Teeth of George Washington. (laughs) And that is in fact true that George Washington's false teeth included slave teeth. And my husband, who is a big sci-fi fantasy reader, recommends that one. I think this is an author that we definitely need to watch. And and maybe, you know, if you're dipping your toes in this, maybe at some point I'll get you to read N.K. Jemison. Maybe so. Who knows? <laughs> Anything's possible, right? <laughs> Anything can happen. All right. We are going to take a short break. And when we come back, Alia is going to answer her three about me. We are back with Alia, and we're going to ask her her three about me. So question number one. So you were a guest on NPR's iconic interview show, Fresh Air with Terry Gross, last year. I'm a huge fan of that show. She's an idol of mine. She's such a great interviewer. Now, you weren't interviewed by her. You were interviewed by one of her colleagues, Dave Davies. But still, what a huge honor. How exciting that must have been. What was that experience like? It was such a dream come true. I mean, that's that's like a life high point, right? I think like most writers, <laughs> I had been practicing fresh air questions in the shower for about 10 years, <laughs> you know, long before anything was on the horizon. And well, we haven't talked about this at all, but you know, my book came out at about the same time as the COVID epidemic. Yeah. Came out. So yeah, so that was a lot of fun. Of course, the book tour was canceled. The launch party was canceled. A lot of the things that had been planned didn't come through, right? And then these other things started to happen that were unexpected and and magical and may or may not have happened without it. And that was one of those things hmm. because a lot of people, and, and Dave Davies drew this connection as well, a lot of people made the connection between the COVID pandemic and the AIDS crisis and the AIDS pandemic. So I don't know if they would have spoken with me with or without that. I have no idea how this came about. It was just an email one morning. And I had like two days to prepare myself mentally, but it was absolutely wonderful. Dave is just a, a, a brilliant interviewer, really different interview style from just about anybody that I have worked with in, in radio or podcasting. And it was just kind of a, it was like a masterclass in how to phrase questions and how to get the answers you want. What was so fascinating uh, about his, his interview style is that I, I got really used to trying to cram all the cultural history and sociopolitical context that I wanted to express 
into right. my answers. Well, people really just want to know about my parents and what was it like growing up in a weed family. <laughs> so, and I'm like, but wait, but wait, there's so much else going on. And Dave phrased all of that context in his questions mm-hmm. so beautifully. And then he would ask me the super personal question designed to make me cry. (laughs) (laughs) But I didn't have to explain everything because he did that for me. It was really very cool. It was very, very smooth. Yeah. Well, I have to say that when Amy realized that you had been interviewed on Fresh Air, she was like, I'm freaking out. I'm I'm not going to pretend I didn't run around the house screaming when I got that email. All right. Question number two, you love horses. And in your book, you talk a little bit about riding them when you were growing up. So Mm -hmm. do you have a horse now? Do you still ride? And what about it brings you joy? So I don't have, I don't have my own horse right now. They take an incredible amount of time and are very expensive to keep. So instead, what I do is I, I volunteer with the National Park Service Mounted Patrol Program in the Marin Headlands. And uh, I'm very, very lucky to be part of this. Every week I go out and take care of the three NPS horses and ride through the Marin Headlands looking for stray lost hikers or uh, just kind of being an extra set of eyes and ears for the actual park rangers. And it's so nurturing for me. I, I literally stopped going to therapy when I joined the Mounted Patrol program, because for me, it does the trick. Horses are so nurturing and it gives me time to think. And yes, I do talk to the horses, (laughs) talk (laughs) out whatever is going on in my life and also just clear my mind. It's, it's very meditative. And so doing that once a week is, is very balancing. And especially during the COVID era, it's, it's been so good for me to get out of the city and, and connect with horses and be a little bit earthy. While so much of, of my life became about being on virtual book tour and these ghostly conversations we have through the media like we're having right now. <laughs> yeah. Well, I didn't think you could get any cooler, but I'm like, you're part of the Mounted Patrol? That is so awesome. <laughs> I'm very lucky. <laughs> Okay, so your last question, question number three, I follow you on Instagram. You have a pet bunny and you even take him on vacations because I've seen the pictures and there's a great pic on your feed where he looks like the main character from the Benicula books. I don't know if you're familiar with that, but there are these children's books where the bunny is like a vampire bunny. And so in your picture, your bunny has carrot juice all around his mouth and it looks a little bit like blood. So I just want to know, why do you have a bunny instead of a more conventional pet, like a dog or a cat? And tell us a funny story about him. Yes. We've had Rye for about nine or 10 years. He is our fourth bunny in my household. It was my husband's idea. He had had a girlfriend who had, who had rabbits indoors and thought they were just the coolest pets. And they really are. They're amazing pets. For one thing, and this is very important, they don't have a voice box. Oh. <laughs> so I, I would I would put little Rizal on the mic right now, but you wouldn't hear a thing. Um, yeah, they, they don't make any noise at all. And, um, and that's kind of wonderful. They're very willful. They have huge personalities and can be little jerks sometimes, (laughs) frankly. Um, But Rai's a real sweetheart. Yeah, so uh, people, I think, underestimate rabbits. Uh, I certainly did before I had a bunny, but they have huge personalities. I mean, they can can dominate the room without making a noise. And they will, like, stare you down and communicate exactly (laughs) what they want out of life. But Rai is a very mellow bun and adorable, as you can see. Yeah, he likes to go on vacation. (laughs) I mean, we can just carry him around. My husband especially will carry him on his forearm and he'll just sit on his arm and you can just walk around with him. We can take him to restaurants and bars. Oh my gosh. Um, He's a better social life than I do. uh, (laughs) uh, We took him on vacation to the Trees of Mystery up by the Oregon border, which is a terrible roadside attraction, to be honest, but it's kind of like an above ground (laughs) ropes course where you go on these suspension bridges a hundred feet in the air. And 
Kevin is like carrying Rye way up in the treetops and he's just chill. He's just looking around like, hmm, interesting view. Cool. Yeah, he's just a super, super chill rabbit. <laughs> what kind of rabbit is he? He is a lion head. So lion head rabbits, they have an, an immense amount of fluffy, fluffy fur around their heads like a lion's mane. And it's kind of, it's like their heads and their butts are super fluffy. <laughs> and then the rest of them is sort of normal rab- rabbit fluff. But yeah, they have great hair. Like Rai's bangs are always flopping down in his eyes. It's very, it's very sexy. <laughs> they, have, they have the best hair of all the bones. Well, Alia, it has been so awesome chatting with you and, and hearing you talk about your book, Home Bay. We really appreciate you taking time out of your day to speak with us. It's been delightful. I I appreciate it. You can find Alia on her Instagram at Alia Voles, A-L-I-A-V-O-L-Z-Z-Z with three Z's or on her website, and this only has one Z, aliavolz.com. Thanks for joining us this week. Follow us on Facebook at The Perks of Being a Book Lover or on Instagram at Perks of Being a Book Lover Pod to see what we're up to. For show notes for any episode, go to our website at www.perksofbeingabooklover.com. The show notes are also included on the description of the episode in your podcast player. We have a new updated website that has some great new features, including listener book recommendations and pictures of our guest pets. So come by and take a look. Finally, a huge thank you to Forward Radio 106.5 FM, a grassroots community radio station in Louisville, Kentucky. You can find our show there, live or in archives, at forwardradio.org.